0: Section 23 of History of Egypt, Chaldea, Syria, Babylonia, and Assyria, Volume 3 by Gaston Maspero, read for into the public domain. Chapter 2, The Temples and the Gods of Chaldea, Part 10. The temples were miniature reproductions of the arrangement of the universe. The ziggurat represented in its form the mountain of the world, and the halls ranged at its feet resembled approximately the accessory parts of the world. THE TEMPLE OF Merodach AT BABYLON COMPRISED THEM ALL UP TO THE CHAMBERS OF FATE, WHERE THE SUN RECEIVED EVERY MORNING THE TABLETS OF DESTINY. THE NAME OFTEN INDICATED THE NATURE OF THE PATRON DEITY OR ONE OF HIS ATTRIBUTES. THE TEMPLE OF Shamash AT LARSHAM, FOR INSTANCE, WAS CALLED EL BARBARA, THE HOUSE OF THE SUN, AND THAT OF NEBO AT BORSIPPA, El Zida, THE ETERNAL HOUSE. NO MATTER WHERE THE SANCTUARY OF A SPECIFIC GOD MIGHT BE PLACED, IT ALWAYS BORE THE SAME NAME, Shamash, for example, dwelt at Sippara as at Larsum in el Babara. In Chaldea, as in Egypt, the king or chief of the state was the priest par excellence, and the title of vicegerent, so frequent in the early period, shows that the chief was regarded as representing the divinity among his own people. But a priestly body, partly hereditary, partly selected, fulfilled for him his daily sacerdotal functions, and secured the regularity of the services, A chief priest, Ish-shaku, was at their head, and his principal duty was the pouring out of the libation. Each temple had its Ish-shaku, but he who presided over the worship of the feudal deity took precedence of all others in the city, as in the case of the chief priest of bel Merodach at Babylon, of Sin at Uru, and of Shamash at Larsum or Sippara. He presided over various categories of priests and priestesses whose titles and positions in the hierarchy are not well known. The Sangutu appear to have occupied after him the most important place, as chamberlains attached to the house of the god, and as his liegemen. To some of these was entrusted the management of the harem of the god, while others were overseers of the remaining departments of his palace. The Kipu and the Shatamu were especially charged with the management of his financial interests, while the Pashishu anointed with holy and perfumed oil his statues of stone, metal, or wood, the votive stella set up in the chapels, and the objects used in worship and sacrifice, such as the great basins, the seas of copper which contained in the water employed in the ritual ablutions, and the victims led to the altar. After these came a host of officials, butchers and their assistants, soothsayers, augurs, prophets, in fact, all the attendants that the complicated rites, as numerous in Chaldea as in Egypt, required, not to speak of the bands of women and men who honoured the god in meretricious rites. Occupation for this motley crowd was never lacking. Every day, and almost every hour, a fresh ceremony required the services of one or other member of the staff, from the monarch himself, or his deputy in the temple, down to the lowest sacristan. The twelfth of the month, blue was set apart at Babylon for the worship of Bel and Beltis. THE SOVEREIGN MADE A DONATION TO THEM ACCORDING AS HE WAS DISPOSED, AND THEN CELEBRATED BEFORE THEM THE CUSTOMARY SACRIFICES, AND IF HE RAISED HIS HAND TO PLEAD FOR ANY FAVOR, HE OBTAINED IT WITHOUT FAIL. THE THIRTEENTH WAS DEDICATED TO THE MOON, THE SUPREME GOD, THE FOURTEENTH TO BELTUS AND Nergal. THE FIFTEENTH TO SHAMASH, THE SIXTEENTH WAS A FAST IN HONOR OF Merodach AND ZERBANIT, THE SEVENTEENTH WAS THE ANNUAL FESTIVAL OF NEBO AND TASHMIT. The eighteenth was devoted to the laudation of Sin and Shamash, while the nineteenth was a white day for the great goddess Gula. The whole year was taken up in a way similar to this casual specimen from the calendar. The kings, in founding a temple, not only bestowed upon it the objects and furniture required for present exigencies, such as lambs and oxen, birds, fish, bread, liquors, incense, and odiferous essences, they assigned to it an annual income from the treasury slaves, and cultivated lands, and their royal successors were accustomed to renew these gifts or increase them on every opportunity. Every victorious campaign brought him his share in the spoils and captives. Every fortunate or unfortunate event which occurred in connection with the state or royal family meant an increase in the gifts to the gods, as an act of thanksgiving on the one hand for the divine favor, or as an offering on the other to appease the wrath of the god. Gold, silver, copper, lapis lazuli, gems, and precious woods, accumulated in the sacred treasury. Fields were added to fields, flocks to flocks, slaves to slaves, and the result of such increase would in a few generations have made the possessions of the god equal to those of the reigning sovereign, if the attacks of neighboring peoples had not, from time to time, issued in the loss of a part of it, or if the king himself had not, under financial pressure, replenished his treasury at the expense of the priests.' To prevent such usurpations as far as possible, maledictions were hurled at every one who should dare to lay a sacrilegious hand on the least object belonging to the divine domain. It was predicted of such that he would be killed like an ox in the midst of his prosperity, and slaughtered like a wild urus in the fullness of his strength. May his name be effaced from his stela in the temple of the god. May his god see pitilessly the disaster of his country. May the god ravage his land with the waters of heaven, ravage it with the waters of the earth. May he be pursued as a nameless wretch, and his seed fall under servitude. May this man, like every one who acts adversely to his master, find nowhere a refuge, afar off, under the vault of the skies, or in any abode of man whatsoever. These threats, terrible as they were, did not succeed in deterring the daring, and the mighty men of the time were willing to brave them when their interests promoted them. Gulkishar, lord of the land of the sea, had vowed a wheat field to Nina, his lady, near the town of Derry, on the Tigris. Seven hundred years later, in the reign of Bel-Nadinabal, Ekerakais, governor of bet took possession of it, and added it to the provincial possessions, contrary to all equity. The priest of the goddess appealed to the king, and prostrating himself before the throne, with many prayers and mystic formulas, begged for the restitution of the alienated land. Bel-Nadinabal acceded to the request, and renewed the imprecations which had been inserted in the original deed of gift. If ever in the course of days the man of law, or the governor of a suzerain, who will superintend the town of Bitsin-Mager, fears the vengeance of the god Zukim, or the goddess Nina, may then Zukim and Nina, the mistress of the goddesses, come to him with the benediction of the prince of the gods, may they grant to him the destiny of a happy life, and may they accord to him days of old age, and years of uprightness. BUT AS FOR THEE, WHO HAST A MIND TO CHANGE THIS, STEP NOT ACROSS ITS LIMITS, DO NOT COVET THE LAND, HATE EVIL, AND LOVE JUSTICE. IF ALL SOVEREIGNS WERE NOT SO ACCOMMODATING IN THEIR BENEVOLENCE AS BELNA THE PIETY OF PRIVATE INDIVIDUALS, STIMULATED BY FEAR, WOULD BE ENOUGH TO REPAIR THE LOSS, AND FREQUENT LEGACIES WOULD SOON MAKE UP FOR THE DETRIMENT CAUSED TO THE TEMPLE POSSESSIONS BY THE ENEMY'S SWORD, OR THE RAPACITY OF AN unscrupulous LORD. The residue, after the vicissitudes of revolutions, was increased and diminished from time to time, to form at length in the city an indestructible fife, whose administration was a function of the chief priest for life, and whose revenue furnished means in abundance for the personal exigencies of the gods as well as the support of his ministers. There was nothing more than justice would prescribe. A loyal and universal faith would not only acknowledge the whole world to be the creation of the gods, but also their unalienable domain it belonged to them at the beginning, every one in the state of which the God was the sovereign Lord, all those, whether nobles or serfs, vicegerents or kings, who claimed to have any possession in it, were but ephemeral leaseholders of portions of which they fancied themselves the owners. Donations to the temples were, therefore, nothing more than voluntary restitutions, which the gods consented to accept graciously, deigning to be well pleased with the givers, when, after all, they might have considered the gifts as merely displays of strict honesty, which merited neither recognition nor thanks. They allowed, however, the best part of their patrimony to remain in the hands of strangers, and they contented themselves with what the pretended generosity of the faithful might see fit to assign to them. Of their lands some were directly cultivated by the priests themselves, others were leased to people of every rank, who took off the shoulders of the priesthood all the burden of managing them while rendering at the same time the profit that accrued from them. Others were let at a fixed rent according to contract. The tribute of dates, corn, and fruit, which was rendered to the temples to celebrate certain commemorative ceremonies in the honor of this or that deity, were fixed charges upon certain lands, which at length usually fell entirely into the hands of the priesthood as mortmain possessions. These were the sources of the fixed revenues of the gods, By means of which they and their people were able to live, if not luxuriously, at least in a manner befitting their dignity. The offerings and sacrifices were a kind of windfall, of which the quantity varied strangely with the seasons. At certain times few were received, while at other times there was a superabundance. The greatest portion of them was consumed on the spot by the officials of the sanctuary. The part which could be preserved without injury was added to the produce of the domain and constituted a kind of reserve for a rainy day, or was used to produce more of its kind. The priests made great profit out of corn and metals, and the skill with which they conducted commercial operations in silver was so notorious that no private person hesitated to entrust them with the management of his capital. They were the intermediaries between lenders and borrowers, and the commissions which they obtained in these transactions was not the smallest or the least certain of their profits." They maintained troops of slaves laborers gardeners workmen and even women singers and sacred courtesans of which mention has been made above, all of whom either worked directly for them in their several trades or were let out to those who needed their services. The god was not only the greatest cultivator in the state after the king, sometimes even excelling him in this respect, but he was also the most active manufacturer, and many of the utensils in daily use, as well as articles of luxury, proceeded from his workshops. His possessions secured for him a paramount authority in the city, and also an influence in the councils of the king. The priests who represented him on earth thus became mixed up in state affairs, and exercised authority on his behalf in the same measure as the officers of the crown. He had, indeed, as much need of riches and renown as the least of his clients. As he was subject to all human failings, and experienced all the appetites of mankind, he had to be nourished, clothed, and amused, and this could be done only at great expense. The stone or wooden statues erected to him in the sanctuaries furnished him with bodies, which he animated with his breath, and accredited to his clients as receivers of all things needful to him in his mysterious kingdom. The images of the gods were clothed in vestments; They were anointed with odoriferous oils, covered with jewels, served with food and drink, and during these operations the divinities themselves, above in the heaven, or down in the abyss, or in the bosom of the earth, were arrayed in garments, their bodies were perfumed with unguents, and their appetites fully satisfied. All that was further required for this purpose was the offering of sacrifices together with prayers and prescribed rites. The priest began by solemnly inviting the gods to the feast. As soon as they sniffed from afar the smell of the good cheer that awaited them, they ran like a swarm of flies and prepared themselves to partake of it. End of chapter 23. Read by Professor Heather and by. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.